0: we're in the book in Nehemiah (laughs) actually next week we get to chapter 7 and chapter 7 is the turning point in the book it's actually a pivot point Uh, the first six chapters deal with the idea of building the wall the last uh, then we come to chapter 7 which is a transition and from chapter 7 on we deal with the spiritual rebuilding of Jerusalem so we'll that's where we're headed Um, we've talked about the idea of Nehemiah going over to build this wall. Uh, He was in Shushan, the palace, a prestigious position, uh, living literally in the lap of luxury, and then he decides to take on this task because he cares about these people and he cares about Jerusalem. So he heads over and helps build this wall. We've talked about all of the issues that he's encountered, fear and discouragement and um, anger and enemies trying to shut the thing down, and we've walked through how he's handled all those and um, last week we got into chapter 6, and, and we talked about some of the issues that he came up against uh, in chapter 6, and one was his focus, where they were really trying to get him to get off task. We talked about how important it is that we stay focused in our lives on that which is important, uh, because often what Satan gets us to do is the tyranny of the urgent, to run to things that are, that are urgent, but yet really in the long end, if we're not careful, we come to the end of our lives and we've not done what's important. And then we talked about the idea of uh, intimidation and how they tried to get them to uh, be intimidated with it. This morning we come to chapter, we come to the end of chapter 6 and um, you're going to see two more tactics Satan is going to use, not only in the life of Nehemiah, but in our lives as well. So Nehemiah chapter 6, here's what it says. Afterwards, I came to the house of Shememiah, the son of Delilah. Now, this isn't the, like the Samson and Delilah thing, so there's a different person. Son of Metabol, who was a secret informer. We don't know exactly what that means, but <clears throat> um, other than the guy was, kind of played both sides. And he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, and let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you indeed at night, and they will come to kill you. Now, he's a prophet. And he's talking to Nehemiah, and he says, Hey, look, let's go to the temple, let's lock the doors, they can't get you there. Going on, listen to what it says. It says, And I said, Such a man, should such a man as I flee? And who is there that such as I that would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then I perceived that God had not sent him at all. But they had pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this reason he was hired that I should be afraid. And act in a way in sin, so that I might have cause for an evil report that they might reproach me. And then he goes on to say this uh, My God, remember Tobiah and Sambalad according to these words, and their prophetess uh, Noadiah. This is now we're introduced to another person. And the rest of the prophets who have made me afraid. What happens is, Nehemiah, for whatever reason, goes to this guy's house. And for some reason, we don't know. We don't know if this is a If this was like a good guy who had been bought or if this is a good guy who just ended up with a bad prophecy or if this was just a bad guy all the way around. But for some reason, Nehemiah had trusted this guy or gone to talk to this guy. And he goes to talk to this guy and the guy says, hey, look, here's the deal, Nehemiah. Um, They're coming to kill you. They're, they're, They're serious about taking you out. I mean, the wall's almost finished. You've caused, you're have you a thorn in their side, and they're going to kill you out, and they're going to kill you at night. So let's do this. Let's make sure you're safe. You come with me, and we'll meet in the temple, and we'll lock the doors. They won't go into the temple. That's the one place they will not go. Now that sounds appealing, and it sounds like that's no big deal, but that's a really big deal. And here's why. Um, in the Old Testament, <clears throat> during this time, it was eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. So that was the way the culture was run. That was the law of the day. So what that meant was this. If you, if you killed my brother, for instance. So let, I'm going to show you an example. I'm to put, so Mike, Mike Segerman kills my brother. Okay? Okay? I don't have a brother, so see, the illustrations are already moot. So anyway, but Mike goes and kills my brother. Now here's the thing. In the Old Testament... I could have walked up and taken his life at any time. I had the right to do that. In fact, it was expected and anticipated that that's how I would handle the situation. He killed my brother, I kill him. Now we're even, done deal. Let's say on the other hand that Mike wasn't the one who killed my brother, that it was Lael, but I thought it was Mike. So I'm after Mike now because I think he killed my brother, but he knows he didn't really kill my brother, Lael did. Mike's option was to run to the temple area and to go into the courtyard and to grab a hold of the horn of the altar that sat in the courtyard of the temple. When he did that, what happened then is the priests would now come out and they would make a ruling as to whether or not I had the right to kill Mike. And if they thought that Mike was the one who killed my brother, they would send him out of the temple area and I could go take his life. Otherwise, they would declare him free, and they would say, you don't have a right to take his life. He did not take your brother's life. So that was the way the system worked. But here's the key. You had to grab the horns of the altar that was in the courtyard because everyone was allowed in the courtyard. Only priests were allowed in the temple. So this is a subtle thing. We talked last week about the importance of discernment. This is a subtle thing. But what was happening was, by this prophet suggesting this to Nehemiah, had Nehemiah done this, now there's a legitimate right to take Nehemiah out. Because Nehemiah was not allowed in the temple area. Even as the ruler of the area, he was not allowed in the temple area. In fact, in 2 Chronicles 26, um, one of the kings goes into the temple and is stricken with leprosy. So Nehemiah, knowing the word of God and knowing the principles, went, you know what? Um, I'm not going to do that. And notice what he says, because it's important. It was for his testimony's sake that he didn't do it. He said, said, first of all, should somebody like I go in and do that? He said, I'm the leader. They're looking to me for leadership. If I'm running from Sanballat and Tobiah, what's that going to say to everybody else? He said, it's just going to set a bad example that I'm afraid of them. And I'm not afraid of them. I haven't been afraid of them from Nehemiah chapter 1. I haven't been afraid of them. Why would I be afraid of them now? And then he goes on and he says, and why would I sin against God and go into the temple and lock the doors when I'm not allowed in the temple? And it's a discerning thing, but it is so important for us to understand that Nehemiah figures that out. Then notice what happens. And and again, the scripture is amazing to me, but the whole book of Nehemiah is about building the wall, right? So when the wall's finished, what would you think? We'd have like at least a chapter on it on the celebration of finishing on the wall, it's two verses. Here it is. So the wall was finished in the 25th day of Elu in 52 days. There's, there, there's the big party. Now there's going to be a bigger party, but this is the big party in the, in the book of Nehemiah. The wall was finished in 52 days. Notice what it says. And it happened when all of our enemies heard of it, that all the nations around us saw these things. They were very disheartened in their own eyes, for they perceived this work was done by God, by our God. Here's what's interesting. The enemies, the world, everybody looking around on the outside, you know what they said? Eh, There's something bigger than those people involved in that. God had to be involved in that that, because that's not the way it normally works. Here's what I think is amazing. Nehemiah solved a 100-year-old problem in 52 days. For 100 years, Jerusalem had sat in disrepair. And Nehemiah, in 52 days, fixed the problem. Now, for those of you who like leadership, you know, for me, I love le- reading leadership books and, and, you know, Seth Gooden and all those guys and, and, and Malcolm Gladwell. and all, You know, I like reading all those, all those guys. Um, but 52 days to solve a 100-year-old problem, I, I, that's a master. I mean, that is, that is some incredible leadership and incredible thing where God was able to do a great thing in a short amount of time. So great, in fact, that even the enemies and all the people on the outside went, you know what, we don't get it, but something's happening over there, and and I guess their God maybe really can do some great things. And the outside world looked at that project and said that was something that God was involved in. Now, the wall's built, Jerusalem's safe, Satan stops working, right? (coughs) Isn't that the way it works? I mean, come on, you know, Sam, and these guys have tried to stop it, tried to stop it. hasn't happened. The whole community is going, wow, you know, God did something great here. It do not end. And if you think that when you finally battle Satan enough times that he's going to stop, he ain't going to stop. Look at how subtle the next deal is. Okay? Um, going on, guys, here's what it says. In those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah. And letters of Tobiah came to them. For many in Judah were pledged to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah the son of Era, the son of Jehon, and had married the daughter of Meshuzalah, the son of whatever. You know what it, You Make up your name. Also, they reported his good deeds before me and reported my words to him. Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. Now, you've got to dig in a little bit to understand this, but here's what happened. Now, Nehemiah's leading... Okay, he's leading Jerusalem. Jerusalem's the walls are up, everything's going around well. But there's a problem. Some of the guys on Nehemiah's leadership team, first of all, were blood relatives, they were related to Tobiah. So now we got this family connection of these leaders. Okay? And some of the leaders for Nehemiah were business partners with Tobiah. So what was happening is Nehemiah is standing there trying to lead, go forward. And these guys who have family connections and business connections are now coming to Nehemiah and saying, hey, Nehemiah, look, can't you work things out with Tobiah? I mean, Tobiah's a good guy. You know, Tobiah said this about you. He's in your corner. It'll be okay. And then the business guys are saying, you know what, look, it would be good financially for us. If we could partner over here with Tobiah, this would, this would make us some money and help us you know, build this and build that and do that. And, and I think you and Tobiah need to work some stuff out. And the whole time they're going back and forth to Nehemiah, trying to get Nehemiah to get this problem fixed with Tobiah. In the meantime, what's Tobiah doing? He's sending letters privately to Nehemiah to try to scare him and frighten him. So Tobiah is still, for six chapters, he has has been a thorn in Nehemiah's side. Now the wall's built, he's still a thorn in Nehemiah's side, but now there are these family and business relationships on the side going on. And these guys are running around trying to say, look, Nehemiah, we need Tobiah. Tobiah's a good guy. And Nehemiah knows better. But here's the amazing thing. Nehemiah doesn't address it. Nehemiah doesn't take the bait. Nehemiah doesn't pull these guys aside and say, hey, look, let me show you these letters he's been writing to me. Nehemiah doesn't pull him aside, pull him aside and say, look, you know what? Here's the thing, and this is amazing about Nehemiah. Nehemiah looks like the bad guy to these guys when he's really the good guy. He's willing to say, you know what, I'm going to take the high road. I'm not going to make this an issue. He's going to look at these guys and say, you know what, no, I don't want to do business with Tobiah. No, we're not going to work things out with Tobiah. There's some stuff I know that's going on that you don't know. He doesn't deal with any of that. He just says, you know what, Uh, we're not going to do business with him. We're not going to do that. We're just going to go forward, and, and let's just leave it where it is. In the meantime, these guys in the background are going, come on, Nehemiah, I don't understand what your problem is with Tobiah. Because Nehemiah knows stuff that those guys don't know. And I think there's a tremendous principle in there for all of us as well. So that's the passage. That's what he deals with. Let me talk about some things that I think help us as we go forward, as we head into this week um, with some things that that we can use in our own lives. First thing, (coughs) Nehemiah protects his testimony. You see, had Nehemiah gone into the temple, it sounded good. But had Nehemiah done that, he would have ruined his testimony. Because even though it was a good guy, a prophet, quote unquote, giving him this counsel, it was bad counsel. Because Nehemiah knew what the Word of God said. And the Word of God said, this is something you can't do. And so Nehemiah wasn't ready to compromise that for anything. Can I challenge you with this idea that the reason Nehemiah was able to protect himself was because he knew what God wanted him to do. And I want to challenge you because there is so much in our culture that is out there to hurt our testimony. And you have to be really, really careful you have to be really careful with the things that you say. You've got to be careful with the jokes that you listen to. Um, you've got to be careful with getting sucked into some of those traps that Satan sets for you during the week. Everybody else is complaining about the boss. I get it. It's easy, it's easy to complain. But you've got to realize you have a testimony at stake. Um... And and you need to be careful because our testimony reflects on, 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 on our God. And, and the whole point of it is that, that we want people to see our God. We want people to see Christ in us. So when we get to this testimony thing, I think it's really important. Nehemiah was able to look at at, at the prophet and go, you know what? This is a bad deal. First of all, it sets a bad example for people behind me who are following me. And secondly... God says, I can't do this. So I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go. If I die in my sleep because they attack me in my sleep, then I die in my sleep because they attack me in my sleep. And I think that's important for us to understand because, listen, those of you who are in business, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's always the temptation to cut corners. There's always the temptation to fudge it. There's always the temptation to not be honest. And you have to realize your testimony is at stake for that. And it is so important because I know, I know it is hard. But you've got to learn that as a Christian, as a God follower, I am going to do what's right, even if it's not popular. And it would have been easy for Nehemiah to justify going into the temple for his own safety, but he doesn't do that because he knows this isn't what God wants me to do. Second thing is this, we have to, in our lives, we have to function in such a way that when the world sees us, they see something different that they have to attribute to God, okay? So, uh, in the walls, here's what happens. In, in the building of the walls, they build the walls and the whole community, the enemies, everybody stands back and go, you know what, I don't get it, I don't know how they did it, 52 days, I mean, you know, first of all, they're not skilled. They're just average people. I don't understand how they pulled that off. Their God had to help them. They couldn't have done that on their own. And that's our challenge as believers. We have to go into the world and live in such a way that the world looks at us and go, you know what, that's not a normal reaction. There's something else happening there. When when everybody else is griping and grumbling about the boss... And how unfair he is, and da 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 da, da. And, and how, you know, he doesn't care about da da da. I think a Christian person stands up and says, you know what? Um, I understand what you guys are saying. Well, you know what? I, I know a lot of people who would give anything to have any one of our jobs. And it may not be perfect, but it's better than what most of the people around this, this city are area have? And I'm just kind of glad to be employed today. You go, oh, they won't talk to me. Yeah, great. Okay, so what? And to walk away thinking about what you said, because you know what? Here's the deal. They do know you're right. But what do we do most of the time? We just jump into the conversation. We just jump in and, 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 and act like everybody else. When we're dealing with with... with, with with issues in our lives. I think it's important that we're honest with people, but yet at the same time, they need to see something in us. So when, when we get a bad report from a doctor, they need to see hope in us that our confidence is in God and that, you know what, we know that it's going to be okay. When we go through crisis, we go through it differently because we have a hope the world doesn't have, and they need to be able to see that. Um, when we go through struggles, they need to see that. When, when, when you know, I go back to the illustration and Again, I, I, you know, it was it, me, me and my, my, it's a wonder I still have 10 fingers and two hands, okay, but I, I was working, and Liz loves telling this story, but I was working over at Liz and Earl's, and I was working with Liz's brother, and I was using an air nailer, and it bounced, and it nailed my hand to the floor, okay, and so I had to, like, get a hammer and pry it out, and but I didn't hit anything important, it was just a, Little hole patched up, band-aid, and kept working. Um, but anyway, um, when I did that, I, I didn't think any I mean, other than, you know, you're, you're stupid. But I mean, but I didn't think anything about it. When, when, he, when Liz got home that night, Liz and Earl got home that night, her brother tells the story. And her brother, you know what he was amazed at? He goes, you're not going to believe this. I watched a guy nail his hand to the floor. And he didn't swear And I'm thinking, well, you know, it's just not part of my vocabulary. It's not something I grew up doing. It's not something that I was... So it's not a natural response for me. But I, it, it, was so, it was so odd to me that it's not like, you know, the guy's an idiot. I watched a preacher nail his hand on the floor. It, it, was, it was, I watched a guy not swear when he did something like that. And it, it's a silly thing, but you know what, listen, they... The world is watching our language. And sometimes we think, I have to talk like them to fit in, and we don't have to. We can have a far better testimony by not jumping in with that. And I understand some of you are in worlds that the language is just, you know, every other word is... is and my heart goes out to you to have to be in that environment all day long. I, I, I understand that. but But it's important for us to realize that, you know what, the world is watching. Can I talk to parents for a minute here, if you haven't figured this out? You want to know the thing that frustrates me the most about my grown children? The areas that I see that they're like me. I'm like, I don't understand how that kid can be so stubborn. Really? 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 You know, why? Because that's the thing, because you start to see, and if you haven't figured this out yet, they watch and they're learning and they're picking stuff up. And you better make sure that the things that we're doing in front of them, the testimony we have in front of them, are the kinds of things that we want them to model. Um, Those of you who are grandparents, you have a tremendous opportunity if you get to be around your grandkids that way to model those kinds of things. The last thing is this, and I think this is the hardest lesson here in Nehemiah. Is this learning to take the high road? Because you see, it's easy to take the low road. The high road's tough. Um, some of you are in situations where there's been a divorce, and now you're doing the step parenting thing, or the 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 you know, single parenting thing or all that so I want to talk to you for a minute because you need to know in in my world you're you're up there pretty close to the top of my prayer list because I can't imagine living in your world. I can't imagine the struggles that you have when you try to play when, when the other parent tries to undermine you and and you get the good parent bad parent thing, and you know they 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 abuse their situation and try to make you look bad and blah 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 blah. I want to talk to you for a second. I always tell people, learn to take the high road. Because at some point, those kids will become adults, and as they become adults, they'll be able to figure out who's taking the high road and who's taking the low road. And it may not pay off when they're 5 and 6 and 7 or 10 or 11 or 12 or 13 or 14. When they're 20, 25, 30 and starting to be parents, it will start to pay off. And I, I, I want to challenge you that when you're in that situation where they're saying that stuff about you and they're undermining what you're trying to do and da-da-da-da-da, take the high road. As hard as that is, take the high road. Nehemiah could have easily pulled out all the letters to Tobiah and said, see, see, see what this guy's doing? He's he just snowballing you guys and he's got you guys covered and you guys don't understand what he's really like and I'm here to expose Tobiah. He doesn't do that. He says, Lord, you take care of Tobiah and Ballot, Guys, I'm not going to get in business with them. I'm not going to settle this because, you know, he doesn't even tell them. But the reality is because he knows stuff they don't know. Take the high road. Nehemiah just decided I'm not going to make this my battle. And it's easy in our culture to start taking shots instead of taking the high road. In business, take the high road. In your marriage, take the high road. Okay, so your spouse is all ouchy and and, and, and prickly and, and pokey and needy. And take the high road. You know? You know? Hey honey, what can I do for you today? Well okay. Let's go do something nice. Go do something nice. You know? Kids, listen to me. Teenagers, listen. When other kids mistreat you at school, take the high road. This is so simple to say, but it is so hard to do. Because we're in a culture, we're brought up as Americans, we're taught that we have rights and and we should fight for them, and we should defend them, and we should do all of these things. And it, so it's so easy for us. In, in a Christian world, we're supposed to submit, and we're supposed to give honor, and we're supposed to give deference, and we're supposed to take the high road. And we, we, we say we're a Christian who we follow Christ, who on the cross cries out, God, look, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. Don't hold this to their, their, against them. When he had every right to say, Lord, wipe them off from the face of the earth and we call ourselves Christians, what that means is we need to be people who take the high road. And at work, we need to take the high road. When, when people are talking about somebody else, and in a negative or critical way, we need to be the one to stop in and say, you know what, look guys, you haven't walked in their shoes, you don't know their story, let's cut them some slack. We need to pe- be people who take the high road. And as if you're involved in leadership, I get the idea that sometimes you have to look like being the bad guy when really you're the good guy. You know, I've been in situations here where people have said, you know, well, you know, you need to do this and this and this. And I said, no, we're not going to do that because I know this story. And there's no reason for me to share this story with these people if they want to think that, that, that I'm the bad guy here and those people are the good guy, Okay. I don't have a problem with that. I don't need to expose them. I don't need to be the. I don't need to let them read all of Tobias' letter. I can back off and go. You know what? Look, um, we're just not going to do that. We're just not going to go down that road because that's what leaders have to do. And and I want to challenge you because you may be in a situation in, in your life where that's where you have to do. You know, and for some of you, get in this family dynamic thing. Look, do you really need to expose something somebody else is doing in the family? to the rest of the family? Is it, what are you going to gain? Keep it to yourself. Take the high road. Love them all. Oh, yeah, but everybody needs to know this because they need to know why I'm right. Really? So it's about you again. Well, they're going to think bad of me. Okay, they thought bad of Nehemiah. And he's a guy God honors, and God says, this, this is my guy. Learn to take the high road. It's easy to not do it. It's hard to depend on God and take the high road when you need to take the high road. And I just want to challenge you, because I think if we would do that a lot more, um, we had a situation, my wife and I, we were at a restaurant down in Omaha, and, and, and honestly, there's slow service, and then there's really slow service, and then there's pathetically slow service. We were in pathetically slow service, okay? I'm watching people come in, and they're getting their meals, and they're leaving before we've even been served. Um. And are getting their checks. They're getting their checks. And I'm going, we haven't even gotten our meal. They came in after us. And, and the waitress felt bad. She came by and said something to us about it. And, um, and we didn't make a big deal of it. We just sat there. And then it got so bad, even the manager, I didn't, I, I didn't say a word. Even the manager came over and go, look, I really applaud you. I don't know what happened in the back, but it was bad. Whatever it was, it was bad, okay? And we had been there like 35 minutes and still hadn't had our food. And we didn't make a big deal of it, you know. I just kept getting more water and bread. And, and, and um, you know, so I knew we weren't going to starve to death sitting there. But, um, and then, then we got our meal. And so we ate and we were eating. And the manager came by and he goes, Look, he said, I'm just so sorry. He said, I want you guys to have dessert on us. We're like, Look, you know, we're full, you know. And he's like, No, no, you just take it home with you. He said, You know, he said, We feel so bad about this. And I was like, Okay, no big deal. And then we left. Her